Beyond the Ranch with Jay Gannon from Find the Ranch. Welcome back to another edition of Beyond the Wrench. On today's episode, we are lucky enough to be joined by my friend Rachel James, who is a financial advisor. And I'll tell you a little bit more about the podcast with her, but I'm going to start with the winner of our higher or lower game with our Wrenchway app. And that winner was Matt Weebly with a high score of 44. Uh, that may be a record. That's a big number. 44 is a, uh, that's a heck of a run. So congratulations, Matt. With that, you win a $100 Amazon gift card brought to you from our friends at Full Bay. Thank you again to Full Bay for supporting the podcast. Uh, unfortunately, Matt did not turn over the Queen of Hearts, so the pot rises yet again to $1,500. Uh, that's a lot of money. We're starting to get back up there again. So I think the last couple of times we've given away the money, it's been uh, about $2,300, $2,400. So uh, somebody's going to uh, to win some pretty good Christmas money, I have a feeling, at some point. So uh, as a reminder, uh, we are looking for technicians, service advisors, managers, fixed ops directors, shop owners, and other professionals who want to help improve the industry by becoming a Wrenchway Insider. As an insider, you can play fun, quick games and win cash prizes by providing anonymous feedback on various industry topics. To become a Wrenchway Insider, download the free Wrenchway app in the App Store or on Google Play. We've included uh, download links in the show notes. As for this week's episode, my friend Rachel James uh, she's got a really cool story that I think all of you will really, really enjoy. Uh, she's got a background in the industry, uh, very heavily involved in the collision industry, but a lot of the advice that she gives and and uh, kind of stories she tells are really around the industry in general. So uh, again, the show is really made to uh, help improve shops from a profitability standpoint, help improve the lives of technicians, and I think Rachel is on point uh, with everything that we talked about in this episode. Hope you enjoy the show and take care. Rachel James, how are you today? I'm very good, Jay. I'm, I'm stoked to be here on the podcast. Pretty excited. I, I'm excited to have you. Uh, we've had some really great conversations leading up to this, some really, really important things that I think they hit home with a lot of the industry. And I'm excited to to dive into this with you today. Me too. Me too. I think there's a lot of great topics we have uh, slated for the conversation, so I'm excited to, to get into it. All right. So let's start off with your background. How how did you get into the automotive world in the first place? Uh, great question. I ask myself that all the time. Like, why am I still here? <laughs> no, <I'm> just <laughs> um, so I grew up, my father was an aviation mechanic and grew up with brothers, you know, my mom and, you know, our family dynamic, you know, I, I was terrible at school. I really was, but our weekends, you know, were often spent, you know, my brothers and I helping my dad with a project car, you know, in, in the garage or, or different like tinkering things. And as I was, you know, kind of finishing up high school and trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself, I remember talking with my dad and being like, dad, like, I just cannot do college. Like, there's no way, you know, I, I went to vocational school and, and I excelled kind of working with my hands. I, 
I would go to the dragway with my friends. I, you know, would tinker on things all the time. My friends and I would um, build cars for the Howler, which I don't know if everyone on your listening would understand what the Howler is, but it's basically where you take a, a beater car, you gut it, and then you run it around a figure eight derby until you destroy it. I've never, um, I've never heard that the, the, that name before. That's interesting. It's called the Halloween Howler. It actually, it's like happening now. It's the Halloween Howler. But, you know, that was sort of like my pastime as a teenager was like to do stuff like that. So I, I talked to my dad about it and, and he was like, you know, just do something that you like and then it really won't feel like work. Like you'll, you'll enjoy it. So think about what you're doing and try and create something around that. So I kind of did some self-observation and decided I wanted to, to go into more mechanical directions. And I went to a few schools and ultimately I wound up going to the same school that my dad went to. So I went to East Coast Aerotech and that was for aviation maintenance. And I chose that school because it taught not only, you know, engine mechanics and jet propulsion and cool stuff like that, but also electrical and HVAC and plumbing and sheet metal and welding. So like there was a lot of different components that I was like, well, I know I'll get more out of this school that I could apply in different directions. So I went there um, and loved it. It, it was really cool. That was in the early 2000s, like late 90s, early 2000s. And I, it was the best, like that was the, my most favorite electrical was maybe the only class where I was like, yeah, I don't really love this, but everything else, I, I really loved it. And then I tried looking for a job after I graduated and everything was out West. And can we swear on this? Yeah, go right ahead. Okay, I don't know. I like just lost my question. Like, I don't know. So to be frank, I was just too chicken shit to move across country and all the jobs were out west. So my uncle got me a job at a local Nissan dealer as a technician. And it was, you know, back then being a woman, it was definitely different. There wasn't very many women back then. So I actually had interviewed, I had put my resume in everywhere. And the job I actually got, they turned me down the first time. But my uncle was really good friends with the manager and was like, no, you got to give her a shot. So I, I got the job and, and it worked out great. We wound up having a really good um, like mentor-mentee relationship after. And I basically, I, I, I worked at that shop. He showed me the ropes. I'd come in on Saturdays just to learn other departments in the, the dealership. Like I wanted to learn and understand like how warranty worked and how you would write a repair order and like, what did this mean? So I, I learned a lot while I was there. Then I went on to a, a GM and Hyundai dealer, worked there. PPG distributor picked me up working at, you know, I, I, that was a long road before I actually said yes to that job, but they picked yeah. me up. I worked for them. And then I wound up working for PPG corporate for eight, almost nine years in a variety of roles, helping business owners and helping them think through, you know, their future. I was more on the values ad side of things and then open, you know, my financial practice three years ago. And here we are. And, you know, now I focus on all blue collar owners and people. So it just, I don't know what a weird windy road, man, but here we are. But I, th I think that's what's so cool though, is that you in the financial space have a background and can speak the language of your clientele, right? The people mm -hmm. that you're trying to help out, you've been in those shoes, you've gone through this industry and I think that's something that's very unique to you. There's not a lot of other people that can say that same thing, right? Right, right. I, I think so. I think it's a unique, it was an area that I noticed over time that I was like, you know, I think I could really, I, 
to be totally transparent, I was never an A-tech. I was probably a B-tech at best. I just showed up on time. So I had better exposure. <laughs> you know, I didn't have any drug habits. I showed up on time, you know, so I got more <laughs> accolades that way. But, but no, I, I do think I have a unique perspective having worked different roles, both in dealerships, independence, and everywhere in between that I've sort of seen the industry from different angles and also just fascinated by the industry. I, I'm, I really am passionate about the auto body industry as a whole. I, I donate a lot of time to skills and to the local schools by me, because if I hadn't found this, I, I was never going to be successful at call. Like that just wasn't going to work for me Same. at that time in my life. Later, like now I read, now I'm all about education, but in my early twenties and, and late teens, I had no bandwidth for it. So I'm, it's almost like I owe it back to the industry because it, it in many ways, like saved me from becoming a derelict. <laughs> well, and I, I think that's where you and I hit it off. So, so much was, I think our backgrounds were very similar in that regard where I was not a great student separate from you. You were, you got to that, that B tech level. I never made it that far. I don't even know if I made it to a good loop tech level. I was terrible, but it, it really, you know, we both grew up around the industry and I think transitioned our careers into something a little different. And really, I think when you find maybe how you can contribute to the industry and make it better, it, it helps everybody. So I, I commend you for finding kind of that spot that you could really do some big things with the industry and and being three years into your own your own venture and having as much success as you've had already is really cool to see. I mean it, it's it's fun to follow you along and see the impact that you're having on others and and really you know really the point of why we're getting together today is to talk about that, right? And and how we can make the lives of shop owners, shop managers, technicians, really the whole industry. How can we make their lives better? And really what you're doing on a daily basis is just that, right? You're, you're trying to help them become better businesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Retweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so how do you, how do you do that? Give me an idea of maybe an aspect of your business that you, you shop out with. I think it's really thinking through the big picture of their business. You know, what do they want? Most, more often than not, everyone's stuck in the minutia of the day-to-day -day grind, right? Like there, in my mind, there is no business any more difficult. And I'm probably saying that the long way, but there's no business more difficult than the auto body industry because there's so many variables. The paint code might not be right on the car or might not be labeled anywhere. Then you find it and you figure out that there's like 80,000 variants and you're not really sure which color to pick. Then you paint the left mirror instead of the right or, or it needs a blend and, and it's not going to get paid for. Like, what do you do? Like, there's so many things that can go wrong. And then the part doesn't fit, right? Like, there's just stuff that continuously goes wrong, no matter how much you plan for. And that's true of life. But I think for most people in the industry, it's about having a plan and having a strategy to get through those bumps and having a process that helps you get through it. And one of the big things I think that, you know, we touch on a lot is, you know, retaining employees and retaining technicians, you know, pre-COVID, it was a problem. Right. Like, you know, when I would go to vocational schools, a lot of the kids were were either going to that vocation because they got to, you know, hang on their cell phone when when the paint was drying or whatever. There's not that many young people getting into the industry. So it's created 
you know, a, a significant issue where most businesses are, are trying to attract and retain new talent. But then on the, the back end of that, right, we've gone through COVID. So what was once a really bad problem is now really, really bad, <laughs> like ridiculously yeah. bad. So I think that's where a lot of focus has been, you know, always, but more so now than ever. Yeah. And we just, I just had this discussion yesterday, but the importance of having a profitable shop is so important to retention and recruiting of technicians because without a profitable shop, you can't offer anything that's Mm -hmm. over and above the straight 40 hours, you know, you're in, you clock in, you clock out. And it makes it very, very difficult for that shop to be able to lay out some of those benefits that might really, really help them. And that's that's been a big focus on this podcast in general, but bringing your expertise into this, it, it's fascinating to me to see your point of view on this. And and have you seen, or maybe let me rephrase that. What is a common issue that you see with shops? Is it just that they don't have a plan to become more profitable? Are they do they feel guilty about being more profitable? What what are some maybe common road bumps that you might see with a shop? I don't think anybody feels guilty about making more money, I, at least with us in our yeah. room. I think everybody's here for it. I think it's more just not knowing what they don't know. They're not looking at, you know, what they have going on. I think we had even talked about this before last time. Maybe I don't even know about the Hawthorne effect about, <laughs> right? I think we did. We, told we did. I, I loved it. it. I, I geeked out okay. on it. Yes. Okay. So we'll talk about it. So 1920s, there was this electrical company that that did this observation study. They observed employees. And what they found was that when they had the scientists with the lab coats like on the shop floor, employees were behaving differently. Same as like throwback to us, right? When like, I mean, think back to when we were in school, when you saw the TV roll in strapped to that table, you know, (laughs) that little tower thing come in, everyone in class was like, yes, we're not doing a freaking thing today. You're dating us, Rachel, that you're dating us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hopefully your listeners are are in your signature. I think they are. I think they are. (laughs) But but the interesting thing about the Hawthorne effect is that the observation, the, the true act of just observing changes the outcome. And that's true in all areas of our life. If we're trying to lose weight, if we're trying to train for something, we're trying to build our business. It's all about watching those things and, and observing. So what I've found is that the, the best of the best are looking at their business daily. Not They're not working in it. They are observing it and trying to push it just from a sheer observation where they're watching the process, they're watching production, they're watching you know how many booth cycles they're getting through a day. They're looking at technician efficiency. They're looking and observing at their estimates. Are they getting every little line item on there? It's about the little details. I think, you know, success is sort of the natural consequence of doing the basics. It's just making sure that all the basics are perfect and tweaking it consistently until it's perfect. And, and, you know, with that, right, things change. And as you grow your business, it's like whack-a-mole. Like as you continue to grow, more problems arise. So that's a big one. And then empowering technicians. I think that whole trust thing, a lot of owners, I think people in general, right? We're control freaks and we, we want everything to be perfect in the way we want it. And if, if you've built this baby of a business, it's very difficult to give away control, but ultimately you one as one person can only 
achieve so much, right? Like you, you can work for 40, 50, 60 hours, but that's like, you can only do so much in those hours. But if you can trust someone else to do their job in the, the 40, 50, 60 hours, you're compounding your overall effect. So just giving some of that trust away too, I think is so huge. Yeah. And I, I think you hit it on the head from what my experience is with shops where especially managers or maybe a technician that had gone into a management role or possibly an ownership role where you're used to having the blinders on and getting that one thing out of the stall and you're you're really really trying to you know clean up your bay and make sure that you control that but when you start managing other personalities that that management style doesn't always work or it doesn't always translate to the next level. And I think that's why we see a lot of really, really good technicians that transition up the ladder or into different segments of a shop kind of start to struggle a little bit because they, they really, they, they could do it. They could do it and visualize it in their head, but they have a tough time communicating that piece to other people. And that's where, I think we as an industry have, have done ourselves kind of a disservice by not training those soft skills and not being able to not being able to get that to translate to a different role. And maybe when that older technician starts to have their body break down or wear down a little bit, they don't have that next natural progression. And it feels like that's where there it feels like there's something missing there right where we're not connecting the dots and helping maybe a younger person gain skills other than technical skills do you do you see anything similar to that with the shops you work with yeah i see it everywhere and what a problem it is because when we think of how much knowledge someone in their 50s or 60s has between all the iterations of problems like i i think back to i think it was like the 06 nissan they used piston rings of the same metal that they had used a decade prior that they were scavenging rings on the piston that was made out of a metal that would deteriorate. So what wound up happening was the engine would consume oil, but it was a problem that they had already gone through in the nineties. And for whatever reason, because there was that loss of translation, because ownership shifted and, and different people took different roles, that mistake they made a decade earlier, they made it again. And then subsequently had to replace engines and, and do all sorts of swap outs and things like that. So where I think we're kind of setting ourselves up for a similar outcome where all these technicians, although technology is changing, right? Like cars are definitely nothing like what they were right. in the nineties and eighties. Like it's definitely different, but I do think there's skill set and knowledge that someone in their fifties and sixties have that's irreplaceable, right? Working smarter, not harder, knowing how to leverage a wrench or how to use the tire machine or use different things in a way that's efficient safe, effective, that someone knew, although they might be really savvy with scanning codes and, and the computer side of things, there's some fundamental things that you just, iterations of working so hard over so many years, how do we pass that knowledge on? And I think it all comes down to communication. Right. Right. And that's something we see as a struggle, not only in business management, but just business relationships in, in general, mm -hmm. that communication aspect and maybe not having the, the strongest communication skills. And I think there's a lot that, especially with a technician, they can grow from if you give them the opportunity to grow. And, and I do feel like we're getting maybe a different mentality around that to where we're, we're, we're shedding some light on this and we're giving some technicians some ability to kind of shine and, 
you know, maybe even deal with a customer here and there, you know, like, I, I think that's something that we try, we tried to hide them in the back bays for forever and trying to, trying to show them that there is opportunity in this business and that you, you know, as you get older, there are, there are pathways for you to, to grow. And, and I, I don't know, I think this all kind of fits into that conversation of if, at the core, you don't have a good business or it's not a strong business and you're not looking at those KPIs and you're not doing, you're not working on the right things. And if you're playing whack-a-mole every day, you're just not going to get to being able to grow that young person to be a, maybe more of a contributor as they, as they grow in their career. And, and I think that's why a conversation like what we're having today is so important is to get that across. How do we, how do we get this younger generation involved and and how do we use that as a recruiting tool as a retention tool and the the power of observation as you mentioned i think is just such a such a big deal and and i guess i would ask if you're one of those managers that might be stuck in the weeds what's a good way to get out of that to working in your day to day more so a big picture type of stuff yeah i think you know, you're, you're speaking to some big things, but I think there are, you know, so many different avenues that people can go into, and this will only expand as time goes on, right? Most people that I meet in the industry are, are aged 40 or older, which means that as everyone sort of ages and, and retires, we're going to just have more and more job openings in all sorts of different segments, manufacturing, products, parts, OEM, like there's just going to be roles that sort of pop up and open everywhere. But I think it comes down to sort of figuring out what it is that you want, right? So if it's you yourself and you're kind of in that like funk, it's sort of thinking about and having a, a vision, like having a design statement and really putting pen to paper about like, what do, where do I see myself in five, 10 years? But also for owners and people running shops, I think it's important to create an environment where that's welcome. And I think that comes down to generational shifts, right? Where unfortunately for people that are in their 20s right now, remote work is very difficult to achieve in this industry because the reality is that if you're going to be a tech, you're going to be on the shop floor. If you're going to be a parts manager, you're going to be on the shop floor. Like most occupations within the industry are hands-on and, and you're not going to be able to log in from a computer. So in order to be competitive with that, right? Because I do believe that the millennial generation or whatever we want to call, I know the name keeps changing. I don't know. I don't even know what group I fall in. I'm I don't know. They change the rules all the time. Like, I don't know. All I know is I had to change the, the channel, like by actually changing it. There was no remote back then. So <laughs> that's how we should define it. Did you yeah, have to get like, up and change the did channel? Did you have yeah. a remote or did you not? But but I think, I don't know. Am I losing my train of thought? Maybe not. Uh, no. I think, I think that, they have to be creative in order to create an environment that younger people are going to want to get into. So you're going to have to rethink how things are done. And, and what I'm seeing across the board is that how it's always been is not necessarily how it has to be. I think there's a lot of things that we just get stuck into. And most shops, even in my time with the paint manufacturer, where we would kind of do shop audits and stuff like that. What was interesting is that there were so many ingrained habits and, and the mind just wants to go back to what's comfortable, right? Like, we are just as humans hardwired to just go back to what's easy and, and doing things that are difficult and constantly changing. Like what I found is that some shops would implement like a new process change. Like maybe they'd do a fast lane where any job under two hours would go in a different direction in the shop. But the second the shop got busy and all of a sudden they had five extra cars that week, 
everything that they had laid out went to shit and they, they all reverted back to their old habits. Like they just, everyone was like, Oh my God, and then, <laughs> you know, back they went. So I think it's about creating and fostering different environments to create different flow. So like one of the things that I've seen is recently in certain shops, it's kind of like having a day where you get everybody together and think through like, all right, like what's working, what's not working. Because there's so many little tweaks that you can do to the shop that just effectively change the environment for everybody. Years ago, we used to do these like shop overhauls where we would kind of go in and try and help with the process and, and think through like, where were they having bottlenecks, whether it was in front of the paint booth or just getting things through, you know, heavy hits or, you know, prep station where like, where was the issue? And how we usually started was by offering up because most technicians, the second you're like, Oh, we're going to change the shop. And we're going to make you get rid of that. tin. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, like, you know, every tech has like that tin full of hardware that mm-hmm. they've kept since like 1983. And there's like all sorts of random stuff in there. <clears throat> they don't need that. Nobody needs it. You know, and the second you start threatening that everyone's arms get crossed and they're like, no way, this is not good for me. <laughs> so where we always used to start was the lunchroom. Right. Like create a nice space for your people to show that you care about them and show that, you know, you're here to make it better for them. Not, you know, yes, you want it better for everybody, but really kind of start on the things that make them open up. And the lunchroom's easy. Right. And, and if you don't have one, maybe creating a space that's comfortable for them to have a break and, and to enjoy food and create camaraderie, because when they're breaking bread, that's when they're going to make relationships and that's when they're going to like build relationships. So if you are the owner or manager, like, are you having lunch with them or are you separate? Like, I think there's something to be said about sitting at the table with the people that you're working with, because it just creates that sense of community. I even thinking through, you know, I've seen different, different concepts of, you know, not having every technician have their own bay. So each tech kind of floats and has essentially like a rollable tool cart. And then there's one wall where everyone's toolbox are housed. So the thought there is that the collection of random parts and assorted things that usually just like creep up into people's stalls because that's sort of their home base, it goes away once everyone's mobile and they just have their tool cart. And then they just have this stacked up, you know, toolbox wall. And it it cleans up the shop. It makes people movable so that if someone croaks on a job or a part just isn't going to come in for which we're seeing now with all these cargo ships. Oh my goodness. I mean, forget it, but you know, it allows for a more flexible movement where, okay, maybe you're stuck with that car in your bay, but it's not your bay anymore. It's just the, a bay move to this one. and We'll give you this car. So it makes a little bit more flexible and allows for people to be a little bit more nimble and adjust for the things that maybe aren't going well. When you when you dive into those conversations, how important is it to have open-ended conversations with the techs prior to making the changes? And I think this is oftentimes something I see with a new manager where they come in, and that's not just our business. I think this is any business, but a new manager comes in, they want to change the world overnight, and they start toying with stuff, and then everybody's mad, and then they have to go back and kind of take some of that stuff away. Is it oh, is it important to have open conversation and dialogue with with a team of technicians prior to going in and making wholesale changes? I think so. Yeah. I think you got to get their buy-in. And I think you also have to ask for their input because no matter what you're observing, particularly for someone just showing up, right? Like if you're new to the role and you've never been in the shop, you just don't see the intricacies of the daily things that go on. So I think it's important to study and observe what's going on for a while before you make changes. 
But, you know, if you've been there for a while and this is a shop that you're used to, but you've just sort of come to this realization where you're like, ah, we should change this and make this environment better. I think what's cool that, you know, I've done a lot recently are, are doing like culture indexes, which is what it's crazy. So we use, what's the name of it? I'll get, I'll get it to you, Jay. But yeah. We, we do this study where we'll do a culture index and it's interesting. So, you know, even for people that I've hired, I know their culture index and I know how they're wired. Like, are they patient? Are they impatient? Like I have no patience. Like my, my patience is so far bad. It fell off the scale. Like it's not even there, but it shows like internal drive. It shows, and there are different ones. There's Harrison reports. There's all sorts of things you can do. And it doesn't cost much to your organization, but it's a way for you to figure out how people are wired and what their values are. Because if someone has no sense of urgency and you're constantly yelling at them to, to get something done, it's like, they're just not going to understand. They don't have that same understanding. So they're like, this guy keeps yelling at me and I don't get it. Meanwhile, you're like, get this done yesterday. <laughs> so understanding how you differentiate from, from yourself and, and your peers, like it is crazy how some of those studies, like you read it and you're like, wow, that's that person to a T. So I, I've seen some shops with success actually hire to a certain culture index. There's a shop I'm thinking of, and I don't know if I should say names or not, so I won't, but they're down in the New Jersey, Pennsylvania area. So people can read between the lines, but they, they basically, a hiring process for them is you have to fit the culture index before you even get through the door. So unless you fit a certain typecast, like you're not going to fit, but then beyond that, what they do is let's say you get through the front gate, right? And you've gotten your culture index. Now you have to interview with the team. So that this, the way the shop set up, the techs work as a team. So there's an ABCD tech. Yeah. And basically the team has to approve that person and interview them and like them. And if they don't like them, it doesn't work. Because the thought is like, you want to be besties with the people you work with. Well, and how powerful is that when it comes to retention, right? Because one, you're asking the opinions of the people that work for two, you're you're not just having them take an assessment, but you're actually using the assessment. And then three, just your day-to-day life as a technician gets easier if you're bought into the new person that's coming in. And I think it makes it less awkward for that person that's coming in, right? And we my business partner Mark and I were just having this discussion yesterday with how awkward it is in your first week anywhere. And mm-hmm. if they, if you've got a team that bought in to you already, I feel like that maybe takes some of that edge off. I think that's brilliant. I think that is such a, is such an incredible idea. Yeah. And I think it, it helps with the texture. So this particular shop that I'm thinking of has always had notoriously a waiting list of technicians, which is wild when you think of it, but they're doing a lot of different things. So that particular shop actually hired a chef. And they have a chef come in and cook lunch. And, and the irony is you think like, oh, man, that's a huge cost, right, to have food prepared. But the studies that they did, again, going back to having that, observe, they were studying and observing the way their people worked, was that if they prepared the meals for their staff, they'd only take a 20-minute break. Versus if they didn't, they'd take a full hour. So everybody was willing to give up an extra 20 minutes if they got a free meal. So they got more production on the floor. It meant that every single tech, they got an extra 20 minutes out of every single one of them back on the floor. So in essence, again, drives more more work on the floor. So you, you give a little to get. And it's not just going to Domino's and getting pizza. You know, I think that's, we hear that from technicians a lot where 
they're like, oh yeah, this, the whole pizza thing's played out. Like it's great that we get pizza, but that's not a job perk. Having a chef come in and cook you a really nice meal, that's different, right? And I think it's just from the the mindset of a technician that it, this is uh, this is good quality. Like the the whole the whole thought process of the shop you're talking about blows me away. That's what I think we need more of. Uh, just that creative thinking in general in our industry. Well, what's interesting though is shops across the U.S. are all doing things differently. Like there's another shop I'm thinking of that has a full kitchen and the owners cook. So like the owner's father comes in, he's this little old Italian guy and he'll come in and he'll make lobster rolls in the summer or make different things. And, and it's a, a family, then you're creating a bond with your staff that's different, right? Like you're not right. going to get that elsewhere. And I think it's a cool way to, to make people feel loved and special and, and create a sense of community. But I think it's about creating that. And again, the Domino's pizza thing, like, I don't know that really anybody's, it's not that great anymore. It's not. Other things I'm seeing, I'm seeing people give unlimited vacation time. Wow. Um, even in shops. Even in shops, I'm seeing it because the reality is if people are bought in and they really do love the shop, they, they're going to take their vacation, right? Like you may have some caveats around like unlimited vacation, but you can only take a week at a time or it's got to be in the calendar a month before. Like you could take whatever you want, but we need to know a month in advance. Like there are ways because then it's sort of like, well, where else am I going to get that? You know, it's a unique feature. And I think it competes with some of the other company. Cause when you look at Google and you look at some of these other, what is it now? Meta, Meta, Meta. Yeah. Meta. Like, <laughs> yeah. Geez, like what's going on? I feel like this is, um, the artist formerly known as Prince, you know, but like, I, I think we have to compete with those types of features. And there are some fundamentals of the industry that you're just not going to be able to break, which means that people have to come in every day, you know, for certain hours. But the other thing, you know, you can be creative, even though we have those firm, you know, bookends, if you will, and be creative with ways to make it still fun. I, you know, one shop I know of in the summer, and this is a New England shop where we don't have many good summer weekends, like, we've got like eight if we're lucky same in wisconsin yeah we're same page it's bad it's bad so this shop basically they value the nice weather so what they do is like i think it's memorial day to labor day that they, what they'll do is they all work like 10 hour days monday through thursday and then they all get friday off wow. so they shut down so friday's shut down their clients know it they know it and they basically all agree you might work an 11 hour day in those time frames but you all get a three-day weekend for the entire summer. And what it's done is it's reduced vacation time because now everyone has a long weekend every weekend in the summer and there's no other shop doing it in their radius whatsoever. So no one will ever leave because they, they're like, I'm not giving up three day weekends permanently for the summer. No way. You know, it's a simple way to kind of have it. And again, like there's going to be some people listening to this going, Oh, no way. I gotta get into this, but you know, find what works for your shop. And, and then implement, test it. And I think it's just an expansion outside of the norm, right? And we're so used to that eight to five. Those are the, those, when we put our shingle out, that those are the hours it says. So that means everybody's got to be here at eight o'clock. Everybody's got to leave at five. And I think that's where we're going to go through some major transformation over the next five to 10 years, because we have to, we did, we recorded one of our panels for tech mission yesterday and it's so cool. One of the one of the panelists said, 
we've got our backs against the wall right now as an industry. We have to adapt because we don't have a choice. And that was so powerful in the way that he said it. It was another Bostonian, by the way, uh, a really, really good guy, Dan Beakey. And I thought that was such a such a powerful statement, one that I hope we take that clip out of that that panel and use it because he was 100% right that if we're not forced into this, we don't adapt. But at this point in time, we are forced into it. We're Our back's against the wall. We've got to change some things. This technician shortage isn't getting better. So what, what do we do in the short term? And those things that you said, I think are right on par with everything that we're up against and how we combat that. And I've got, I, th- I think the body shop business might actually have it a little bit easier than the general service repair business. And I, I've got a really good friend of mine who's a, a body tech at a dealership in the town that we're located in. And they basically said with him, they're like, we don't care what hours you work over the course of the week. We're going to give you projects at the beginning of the week. They'll probably equal 40 to 50 hours of real time. And you work on them when, when you want, just make sure they're done by the end of the week. And so, you know, it gave him complete control and he had, he has a family with some kids that are athletes and having to pop out of work at three o'clock rather than, you know, 10 years ago, if you left early for a kid's ball game, you know, you you grew up in a shop. I mean, it's, it, no, it wasn't happening. And so seeing some of this change and adaptation that can happen with some careful planning and some scheduling and, you know, working with them to even understand what their schedule is. There's so many managers out there that have no idea what's going on in that technician's life. I think just even understanding their family dynamic, maybe they've gone through a divorce and they've got their child every other week or on the weekends, you know, being able to really understand what that individual needs and cater to that is again, I think it's something not a lot of shops do. And for those shops out there listening, I think there's a huge opportunity right now to set yourself as that destination shop because you do things that others don't. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think what's interesting is there's this traditionalist mindset of be the first to get in, be the last to to get out. There's a lot of archaic things within our industry that just it's the way it's always been done. So we'll just keep doing it the same way, but we're all changing. Our lifestyle is so much different. You know, in the 80s, most families, right, one one car per household, one person went to work, one person stayed home, and the kids stayed home. And it wasn't the way it is now where both parents work, there's sports, there's activities. You know, you used to trust your kid to walk down to the, the park and go to their, their activity. Now you have to drive them because they're going to get abducted, shot, or killed. Like, there's <laughs> just different. Our mindset around things are totally different. So we have to be active parents, and we're all doing a million things at once. Plus, you got to post on social media, and you got to do this. Like, we're getting pulled in so many different directions that it is really challenging to do it all. And I think as owners and, and body shops and people, we need to rethink how we've always done it. And I think your idea, like that dealership friend of yours, it's a great idea yeah. to just put the flex time to say, okay, like it, here's the work. Oh, well, if you take time off to go see your kids practice, you can come back in later or show up early or do it differently to make it work. And, and I would say in general, all companies are rethinking, you know, with the advent of COVID and so many people that went to remote work, right? Outside of the industry, I think everyone's sort of at this, shifting moment. I, 
where we're all kind of figuring out what should we do next. So what a perfect time, you know, now to really rethink and reframe how things are, are being done. I want to talk to you briefly about, and this is a little off topic, but I feel like you were kind of a trailblazer as a, a young female technician coming in when you did. I do feel like that's starting to shift a little bit where shops are a little bit more accommodating to a young female technician or a veteran female technician. And again, I think it's because we were forced to, but talk to me a little bit about your experience coming into a shop and how, you know, the good, bad, the ugly, what what, what was yeah. it like for you as a, a young female technician? Yeah, it was definitely different. So, you know, What's interesting is in my teen years, like I, I helped a, a buddy's landscaping company. I used to put the plows and service the plow trucks and, and do that as just sort nice. of like a side job in high school. And I always had respect that like those were my absolute peers. Those were my friends. And, and I never felt any opposition then. Like that was definitely, I never felt anything. And then when I went to East Coast, it definitely opened my eyes to the, you know, I wasn't in um, Kansas anymore, you know. <laughs> Uh, that not everyone was going to love, you know, little old me coming in that it was, I didn't, I never really had, you know, experienced that because the people that I knew and hung around with had grown up with me and and thought of me as the tomboy with a unibrow and and wore t-shirts and jeans. Like it just, you know, that was the way they thought of me. So it was like non-threatening, but it was not easy. There was a lot of opposition. There was definitely some people that were very unhappy just with the presence of me, you know, like there right. was some people that really were like, Oh no. And the, you know, it is what it is. Right. What's interesting though, is that the internet didn't exist. I mean, it existed, but it didn't exist the way it does now. Correct. I yeah. never saw another female technician. Like I was on an Island on my own and there was never any other female, you know, doing the same thing that I was doing. So it was really hard to figure out like what I couldn't do and should do and, you know, what, what line to kind of cross or not cross, I guess. And now what's cool for young women getting into the trade is that there's so many role models that are sharing their story on social media and like sharing what they're doing. I mean, <clears throat> when I went, there was no women's work boots. Like I'd go to Red Wing and I'd go, you know, they didn't have it. So I bought hiking boots because that was the, the only thing closest Wow. It, the uniforms, they didn't have women uniforms. So I got a men's 30 by 30 pant and I got a, a men's medium shirt, which was like a dress. And that's, that was my uniform. And, and thankfully, like I could sew. So I tailored some of it a little bit, but things weren't built for a woman. And it was interesting, you know, even just figuring out how to use the tire machine, right? Like right. BMW low profile tires, trying to get those off. Like the worst. <laughs> yeah, the worst, the absolute worst. I just remember being like on top of the machine, like, oh my God, you know, like all my body weight, just trying to get these damn tires on. So, so I think there was some ingenuity of just like figuring it out. I was very determined. I really loved it. So there was a lot of determination, but there was certainly a lot of naysayers. There was a lot of bullshit. There was a lot of silly things that I had to go through just to, to prove my worth, but I wouldn't trade it because it gave me a really unique perspective that like I can do things and, and it's not always going to make other people happy. And that's not my business. Yeah. You know? But I'm glad I, I went through it. I'm glad I did it. I, you know, it's very cool to see how many women are doing these types of things now. It's awesome. I, I 100% agree. And I think that's where the conversation that we had about work environment really leads into that. And, and even that shop that you referred to that has so much great going on, 
I think that's the the impact that a good work environment can have is when you have good people, you hire good people and they fit your culture and you're a good person to start with. I think that helps a lot in being able to bring in talent. And let's face it, there are some extremely talented women in our industry right now that we do not turn our back to. Like we we have to open this up more to to be more conducive to women. And I'm glad to see that maybe we've made some strides there. One other thing I wanted to, to talk about with you, and this is something that I think is near and dear to my heart, which is tool investment from technicians. And maybe, I, I guess for me, in employing technicians, one of the things I saw a lot was that young technician that goes through tech school and gets the discount in school, spends 10 grand up front, eight of it on a toolbox, and, mm-hmm. and putting themselves in really bad positions right off the bat. Do you have any advice for maybe young technicians that might yeah. fall into that category or, or maybe some some words of wisdom for them as they get started in their careers? Yeah. You know, first and foremost, nine millimeter, eight millimeter, 10 millimeter sockets, you're going to lose all of them. Just <laughs> buy them at Harbor Freight. Cause like they're, you're just going to lose, like they're going to lose them. Like if they're not worth buying the snap on version. So like omit them from the purchase. So I think getting an older technician to sit down with you that you respect, that you think is a good mentor or finding one or call me, or I don't know, like there's people that I think could look at it equitably and say, okay, this is worth it or not. But some tools, yes, you want to buy nice. You want to use Mac or snap on or whatever, you know, whatever your fancy is. But then there are other tools like plastic trim tool removers you don't need to spend a hundred bucks on that. You can get a cheap kit. Cause again, it's, they, it's not that critical. So I, I think it comes down to, you know, ratchets. Yeah. You probably yeah. want to spend a good amount of money on that impact drills, like guns, things like any kind of air tool. Yes. Probably want to go for more quality, but and care for them, right. Oil them. Don't totally let them go. And I, I would say, you know, talk with, you know, and this goes both ways. I've seen some shops where for the younger technician, they've basically worked out an arrangement where it's like, okay, we'll provide you with this toolbox. And as long as you stay with us for a couple of years, like whatever that is, like it's yours at the end of the day, but helping the younger person invest in some of those things or guiding them through those choices, because it is easy, you know, to get on the snap-on truck and, and just like totally like wake out and be like, I want everything. But ultimately, depending on your role, you don't need everything. You know, it's not a necessary um, expense to kind of spend your money on every single tool out there. I would really kind of look at like, what is your role, right? If, if you're the painter and all you're doing is painting, you know, do you need body technician tools? No, which I think when you're first, first starting out, like I, I know for me, right. When I was first starting out, I was like, Oh my God, I need everything. <laughs> you don't like, you got to figure out where you're going to start and then kind of cater your tool selection to that. So I think that's where people who've been in the business a little bit longer and understand what role you're going to fit really helps to know that. And same as, you know, having the owner or a manager supply a tool list of things that they think you're going to need for the job. Because I, I remember, you know, my very, very first official dealership job, I like shit my pants the weekend before. I was like, oh my God, I don't have everything. Like I need to go, you know, I just remember like running to Sears and like 
just buying stuff. Like, I don't know, maybe I need this, maybe I need that. Cause I didn't know. And, and then I, I like wound up returning half of it. Cause I'm like, I don't need any of this. I, I would think that it would be helpful if people in leadership could provide sort of an expected guideline of like, we expect you to have these types of tools, yeah. you know? And not just saying general tools, right? Because I think for a young tech that you need to define that a little bit. And even for me, like your advice is so good. I remember when I was like 15 or 16 years old, no money. And I went on and bought like this $120 Mac tools screwdriver set. And looking back, it's they're still in my toolbox today. I'm like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever spent money on because I didn't need a 120. That wasn't going to make me better at my job. They look cool. They had a red handle. It was awesome. And but looking back, I'm like, that is such a dumb waste of money because I could have got something that would suffice for less than half of that price, right? And and again, you, you alluded to it, but having a nice ratchet is something you're going to use all the time. That's probably worth the investment or a nice air gun or, you know, whatever it is, whatever is applicable to what you are doing is impactful and good you know, you can really 80, 20 it really. I think when you think about it, there's certain tools you're going to use every single day and they're really impactful to your job. There's other tools. I still have a stubby set of snap on wrenches, super expensive, like 200 and something dollars. Again, really dumb purchase because I think I've used them a total of you know, I don't know. Even when I was in a shop, I didn't use them that often. You needed them for a very specific purpose when you needed them but I didn't need them. It, you know, you could go to Craftsman and cut a wrench in half and use the same thing and get away with it. Right. And right. I think it's just being smart about it and thinking through that. What is the, what role can a shop play in, in educating a young tech in, in that role? And I think before I let you answer that, I think it's really important because the more you can help them out in that, in that time frame the less likely they are to put themselves in financial distress. And when somebody gets in financial distress, I don't care what you say, it impacts their day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. And if they get themselves in a ton of credit card debt or in a bunch of tool truck debt, and they spend all day Wednesday dreading when that, that truck salesperson is going to come in asking for money, that's going to have an impact on their productivity. That's going to have an impact on their psyche and their confidence. And so... I think there, one, I think there's a lot of impact on a shop that does financial education with their techs. And then two, I think it's got to be true. Like, I don't think it can be just a, all right, yeah, just don't spend money stupidly. It's having, like you said, a, maybe an older technician talk to them. And I think there's just so much impact in all of that. No, I, I completely agree. I think we all get lost in, in not realizing what we don't know. You know, we all go through our life in our own unique paths and, and we know the things that we know. It takes a certain type of person that's able to articulate the simple and the things that they've already known to people that don't know it yet. And I find that a lot when I've done, you know, time at the vocational schools helping the kids is that I realize like, oh my God, these kids don't realize this. Like, oh, and it, it's more of like, all right, let me just like take a step back and, and go over this with you. Because you have to remember someone who's young and coming into your shop has just not experienced life yet. Right. Like they just, there's things, and that's not a disservice to them. It means that they can approach things with new eyes and, and with a different perspective and they might teach you something, but there's a lot about life that they just 
have not been exposed to, right? Like they probably still live at home with their family. They probably don't have many bills. Like it's just a different, you know, their number one priority is likely to go grab a beer at the end of work with like their friends or go on that really hot date or whatever. But like, it's not, it's not what the rest of, you know, our priorities are. So I think it's important to communicate those things and at least have the process in place to help educate. And and it could literally be as simple as just handing them a piece of paper and saying like, here's some things for you to know before you start and talking about these are the tools that are necessary for the job that you you know are worth spending the money on the rest here. Or maybe, you know, I I think there's always that like, oh, shop tools, you know, they're going to steal it. They're going to whatever, but like you can, you can put your name and you can like emblazon on tools. You can etch into them. You can also have a parts manager that either signs tools out or takes them back. And that way, you know, for expensive ones that you're owning for the shop, whether it's like a torque stick or whatever, I don't know, you could work out some sort of arrangement where there's some things on loan. Do you, do you envision a time where there's shops that are exclusively supplying tools for their technicians? I think there are some cases, you know, I, there's some dealerships I've been to that, they want it to look a certain way. So they offer a toolbox that's of a certain shape. Like it does not, it's not, does not belong to the technician whatsoever, but to keep kind of a streamlined look, they supply the toolbox and then they supply different things. It could come to that, but I think it gets difficult in the sense that whose tools, what it can get a little confusing that way. I always found like when I worked on the floor, like most technicians I would work with, they we would borrow you know what i mean we would hey can i borrow that real quick yes. like do you mind if i borrow this tool i think if you've got a good good enough culture your peers will share with one another and it's no big deal because as long as you return it then that technician is okay cool that and having like foam inserts like in your drawers because then it's like oh this is missing like you know who who stole this like sonic sonic tools is doing a great job with that right now for you know maybe a, a tool brand that not everybody's familiar with. They do a phenomenal job with the inserts and with starter kits and, you know, just, I think, understanding some of the ways that the uh, the industry is shifting. So yeah, I, it's, it's fascinating. I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of room for growth within our industry. And, you know, I think that's where your role in how you're working with shops plays such a a large impact moving forward, right? And I say it all the time, in order to make these make this environment better for technicians, we need shops to be more profitable. And some people might think we're crazy because of, you know, we've got some really good margins in the service business, but at the same time, it's not enough yet to where we can offer some of this other stuff. And if it was, we'd probably overstaff our shops, have an abundance of people to have flexible shifts and do different things, but we're not there yet. And I I think we're going to, again, I think our backs against the wall, we're going to have to adapt a little bit. And a lot of the stuff that you talked about today and the ideas that you generate, I think just by you talking uh, is going to be really impactful to the listeners. And I I really appreciate you taking some time and sitting down with me, talking through some of this stuff, because this was incredible. This was really, really good. Thanks, Jay. I, I hope, I hope I, it was, it's always fun talking with you. I feel like we can get on total tangents of like, 
So I'm glad that we stayed on task because I was a little worried. I'm like, we're going to wind up talking about books and it's going to all go to shit. Uh, <laughs> it could have uh, easily happened. Yes. It could have easily happened. But no, I appreciate um, the time and talking about things that are important to me and I think important to everyone else. And I think, you know, if we all kind of work together and, and share ideas with each other, and I think your platform is a great space for it, I think we can all get better from it and all improve and create a better environment for everybody, you know, in the blue collar space. So excited to see where, you know, your podcast goes and who, you know, I've been tuning in. It's cool. I like what you guys are building. So, you know, to the moon. Thank you. The same to you. Love everything that you're doing and wish you nothing but continued success. Hope we can get you back on the podcast again to, you know, I, I think I said this in the, our last conversation. If we just hit record on one of our random conversations, it might make for great radio. So I'm biased, <laughs> but I agree. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. How do people get in touch with you, Rachel? Best way I am on Instagram. So Scary Spice, which, you know, there was no other choice. It was my maiden name. So Scary Spice. And then Facebook, I'm on there as Ray James. And then LinkedIn, I'm on there as Rachel James. Everybody, if you've got any questions, looking for advice, I would highly encourage you to reach out to Rachel. She's brilliant. And we were really, really lucky to get her on the podcast today. So thank you so much, Rachel. I hope you have a great day. You too. Thanks, Jay. 